0: Welcome back to Everything is Public Health. I'm MJ. And I'm Cass. Welcome to part two of our discussion on abortion access. Today's episode will be a little bit different in that it will be a little bit longer. But don't worry, we have a short intermission in the middle between the two halves. We're
1: back with our special guest, Professor Joanne Rosen. She's a faculty member in health policy and management at the Bloomberg School of Public Health. You heard her in the previous episode where we discussed how what is essentially a medical procedure got so politicized and drawn into legal considerations. If you haven't already listened to that episode, we recommend pausing this and going back and listening to that episode before joining us again here.
0: Indeed. Uh, Last we left off, we went over the origin of this whole anti-abortion or criminalizing abortion movement in the U.S., which started in the mid-1800s, so not as early as most people think.
1: Right. And- Prior to that point, abortion, while still stigmatized and potentially taboo, depending on who you were talking to, wasn't technically illegal and was relatively accessible.
0: Quotes on relatively.
1: Yeah, Yeah, right. You know, it's not widespread access, but, you know, it it wasn't necessarily only back alleys that you could get an abortion. And the understanding was that prior to the fetus moving or quickening, it was, quote unquote, fine or acceptable uh, to obtain an abortion. And the criminalization aspect really happened because of a few that we discussed before Mm -hmm. issues around white supremacy and making sure that white women were not getting abortions while women of color were not. And then it would change the ratio of demographic supremacy in the US, the rise of the medical establishment.
0: This took me by surprise.
1: Yeah, we talked about how physicians really wanted to dominate anything medical related. They were trying to displace practitioners who previously were seen as having expertise in sort of obstetrics and gynecology, midwives, women, etc. Yeah. And there's the the grand old patriarchy. Yeah. (laughs) Which is great where the perspective that women don't have agency and
0: or women shouldn't have agency. It's more explicit, yeah.
1: Right. Yeah. And this was especially maybe particularly true in the context of black women. And then we, I think we circled back and talked uh, about some white supremacy again. <laughs> that's a, a quick recap for folks.
0: And I think one of the things that I think is important to mention again is how explicit it was. Like a lot of times when we talk about sensitive topics like this, people say, oh, that maybe that's just your interpretation of the facts. It's was like, no, <laughs> there was no interpretation. They, they literally said, we want more white people in this country.
1: Yeah, Joanne gave us a lot of details sort of specifically delineating Um, this thinking, which was shocking and also not not shocking at (laughs) the same time. And if folks recall from the prior episode, the sort of religious aspect or involvement in abortion really evolved later than this but as folks know now i'm sure anti-abortion is a core pillar of the religious movement and vice versa like religion is a core pillar of the anti-abortion movement Mm -hmm. especially in the catholic church
0: yeah and that's a surprising origin of this tidal wave that hasn't really ended note that this was mid to late 1800s so this is a hundred years before roe v wade right the movement to criminalize abortion was incredibly successful unfortunately and during that 100 years pretty much every state had some form of anti-abortion legislation passed to varying degrees and in 1910 it was banned essentially nationwide
1: unsurprisingly and obviously as we've talked about in a couple of topics in this and prior shows when you ban something you don't just sort of immediately eliminate demand it doesn't just evaporate no you know you need to address the supply and demand right so what happened to women seeking abortion During that 100 year time,
2: there was a very, very, very long period in which abortion criminalized. And if you look at people who had means getting into the 1960s could fly to Europe, you'd have to fly all the way to Europe to get an abortion that was provided by a trained physician there were unlegal, sort of illegal abortions that were taking place, and the sort of you know the was often described as back alley. And with the Supreme Court having heard the recent Mississippi 15-week ban case, there have been a lot of really good articles, either written for the first time or republishing older articles on what it was like prior to Roe v.ersus Wade to be trying to get an abortion, and how again doctors could have their licenses removed. They could be charged criminally. So there was a tremendous disincentive for physicians, even those who could perform abortions, to do it because they could end up facing criminal charges and being in prison.
0: A lot of women simply didn't get abortions, right? That much is very logical, right? If you have hard access to abortion, you simply don't get abortions. And I think, you know, this is, like you said, like what happens when we had prohibition? If you can't get it legally, someone's going to do it. So this is the abortion equivalent of, what is it called, moonshine? Yeah. Yes, <laughs> moonshine and also this is the abortion equivalent of if you have money anything happens for you which is if you have the wealth and resources you could travel to places that did allow abortions so europe i didn't look into canada but basically you have to go out of the country to find abortion which if you had the money or resources you could do the takeaway is that this impacted a lot of people
1: yeah and as we've talked about previously this shouldn't come as a surprise to regular listeners mm-hmm. with money yeah you can
0: <laughs> do a lot of get things. Away with yeah.
1: things you can get around things you can can do lots of pieces so unsurprising as you said that this was relevant for abortion access as well
0: yeah and uh, we'll actually loop back to this in the second half after the intermission so stay tuned for that now the next part of the history gets a little bit complicated i want to focus on something that is perhaps not the usual suspect in the discussion about abortion rights for example we're not going to talk in depth about roe v wade and now some listeners are screaming i can hear you (laughs) um one reason that we're not doing an in-depth discussion about Roe v. Wade is that there are tons of other sources and tons of other podcasts that have sort of dissected Roe v. Wade extensively. But obviously, we can't not talk about it. So, Cass, if you had to sum up this landmark Supreme Court case in one sentence and do you limit yourself to one sentence, <laughs> oh, how would you do it?
1: <laughs> that's okay. Can I take five seconds? Okay, brevity is key here. Brevity and clarity.
0: Uh-huh, one sentence.
1: A woman has the right to choose.
0: That's really good. Yeah, there we go. That, that's pretty much the gist. So Supreme Court case Roe v. Wade, it's a landmark case. It basically said, like what you said, women have the right to choose. And what that does is that it essentially reversed most, well, not all, right? Because there's varying degrees of anti-abortion law. So it reversed a lot of anti-abortion laws in the states. And it basically established abortion as a right to privacy, a constitutional right, so you can no longer prevent women from getting an abortion under certain circumstances. They used a trimester system, which I'm not going to get too much into, but depending on the trimester, states have varying degrees of what sort of anti-abortion laws they can pass. And that's all I'm going to say about this <laughs> unless you don't want something to ask. <laughs> uh,
1: no, I do want to say I think it's very weird mm-hmm. that the issue of an abortion sort of in the legal context became about privacy. Yes.
0: It is weird, huh? And
1: not about a person's autonomy, yeah. which I found very interesting. And I know we're not going into v. Wade and folks should really listen to some of the other great resources that are available on this topic. But I just want to highlight that for folks mm. that this issue of abortion was a privacy issue, not like an autonomy issue.
0: Yeah. So even in an abortion rights win it's a very weird win. Yeah. Right. It's still not about women's agency. It's still about, well, you can you can do things in private. But, you know, however you feel, it is nonetheless a win for abortion rights activists. And and that's the gist. Now, the Supreme Court case that I want to spend more time on is Planned Parenthood versus Casey. We talked about this briefly with Professor Rosen, but what's your understanding of the case prior to our conversation?
1: Yeah, so I was knowledgeable-ish on the topic. Like, I don't want to claim that I knew a ton, but...
0: That's my entire life. (laughs) This is
1: something that came up actually in my MPH program. This is something that we had talked about. And so my understanding is that... Planned Parenthood v. Casey, which came 20-ish years after Roe v. Wade 15... Years it was in the early nineties. 90s, 90s, nineties,
0: yeah. It's Roe v. Wade is seventies, by the way. So yeah,
1: that yeah. So twenty years. Yep. It upheld Roe v. Wade as a starting point, mm-hmm. but it changed the standards yes. for analyzing how the right to abortion could be restricted. Correct. So Roe v. Wade said you have the right to choose, and then Planned Parenthood v. Casey came in and said, well, you have the right to choose, but under particular yeah. circumstances, and then sort of allowed for different considerations, yeah.
2: precedents. And in Planned Parenthood versus Casey, the court sort of retracted the nature of the constitutional protection for the abortion decision in Roe, row and said, essentially, the state has an interest from the earliest point in pregnancy of trying to persuade the pregnant person to continue along with that pregnancy. And the state can enact regulations to both to protect the health and safety of the person undergoing abortion, but also to try to promote its own interest in life from the earliest point in pregnancy.
0: So we're gonna do a throwback to our preemption episode. So Roe v. Wade, it didn't say you can't ban abortions ever. It says under circumstance circumstances, this is the floor, right? You could you could establish less strict regulations or for, for example, first trimester, it's you can't touch it at all. Second trimester, states are allowed to establish some some restrictions third trimester states are allowed to establish even more restrictions. It was a preemption case. And basically, Planned Parenthood versus Casey pushed that line a little bit. So there are two takeaways from this case. The first takeaway is from the trimester framework to viability. So instead of saying first trimester, you can do this, second trimester, you can do this, it just became one line. And that line is, can the fetus survive outside of the mother? And obviously with advances in medical technology, that line has been moved up and that line continues to be moved up back up back but t- t- closer less time in the mother
1: yeah the line is moved closer to the point of conception yes as opposed to closer to delivery yeah i guess, guess. that's a weird way to say
0: that that is a weird way but birth birth yeah birth. <laughs> why do we say delivery <laughs> like an amazon <laughs> the act package of
1: being born
0: <laughs> yeah the act of being born but yeah as medicine gets more advanced that line just keeps getting Pushback. The second thing, and this is, I think, the important thing, which is why I mentioned the preemption stuff.
2: Under Casey, prior to fetal viability, all of that regulation is permissible, so long as it doesn't impose an undue burden on the woman's access to abortion. So I think of Casey as the metaphorical case that launched, you know, a thousand abortion regulations.
0: It went from strict scrutiny, which is a very, very high bar to clear, to undue burden. And I want you to remember these two words because these two words will come up again and again and again. Undue burden. So basically they said you can do whatever regulation that you want unless it puts a lot of undue burden onto the woman's access. Now...
1: Yeah, how one defines undue burden is dependent upon one's perspective and resources to which you already have access.
2: And many of those laws were not there in order to protect women, to ensure that the procedures were safe. They were actually there in order to interfere with access and make it as difficult as possible to obtain an abortion and hopefully dissuade women from obtaining abortions and dissuade or discourage physicians from providing them.
0: This is where you get the image of the evil mastermind sitting behind a desk on his large office chair, just tapping his fingers like, hmm, undue (laughs) burden. What can I do with this phrase? <laughs>
1: that's such a... Like, you're clearly a, a child of the 2000s. because Because yes. that's, that's a...
0: Classic trope.
1: Very specific yeah. bad guy, evil mastermind image. That's
0: funny. What's your evil mastermind image?
1: Well, now it's been superseded by the one you just described. <laughs> I couldn't tell you off the top of my head now because all I can imagine is a dude... <laughs> sitting in a chair behind a desk with a cat in his lap like, "Hmm, what evil thing can I come up with today?"
0: I have incepted that idea into your mind and now you will you don't remember what your previous conception was, but anyway. Now, I want to talk about more about this case because I think this Supreme Court case is a perfect representation of the natural progression of the anti-abortion plague, I guess. Now, I remember in multiple episodes we have talked about the concept of like race neutral language in laws but still very, you know, racially discriminatory in practice.
1: Right. We've talked about how our policies in the war on drugs didn't have to use racial language or racial terms, but where we chose to enforce those laws illustrated the racial intent and impact, right? We are enforcing drug laws in predominantly black and brown communities. And then we're like, oh, wow, there are so many black people arrested for drug crimes. I wonder why. why It's (laughs) because you're not going and enforcing drug laws in white neighborhoods. So maybe that's part of the anyway. Uh, But right, so we've talked about this before.
0: Yeah. You know, black and white Americans uh, use drugs at similar rates, as you mentioned. And I'm pretty sure Wall Street does a lot of drugs, but, you know, you don't (laughs) see drug bust on Wall Street. And and this is and they had to do this because as society get more and more, what's the word, more and more cognizant. You know, more and more woke. If that's to well, I,
1: I don't know that it's becoming more woke. No, like, it's I'm, I not. <laughs> don't want to give our country that kind of credit. No, but it's more about the court saying you can't have this race-based policy, this race-based language, right? So we had all of these Jim Crow laws, mm-hmm. and those were struck down when in the civil rights era. Yeah, and so the court said you can't do these things on the basis of race. And those smart masterminds yeah. <laughs> sitting at their big desks yeah. said, "Oh well." We'll just talk about criminals and a war on drugs, and we'll talk about it in a way that it's clear in everybody's mind who the criminals are and what they look uh, like, but we don't have to put that whistle. language specifically in the laws.
0: Yeah, so that's essentially what happened. They can't write it explicitly, so they had to use some you know, trickery in their language and practice to sort of get the same agenda across. And when we talk about the war on drugs, which we definitely will in a future episode, we're going to talk about crack cocaine versus powder cocaine, because I think that's just icing on the cake. That's the wrong way. That's just like a perfect example of what we mean when we say race neutral language. But it's very obviously still coded. And the same thing happened with abortions, right? So obviously the conservatives didn't rest when Roe v. Wade happened. In fact... It banded them together, <laughs> and Yay. oh god! And the anti-abortion people realize that it is no longer possible to use white supremacy language, sexist language, or overly religious language because they realize that these things are just not going to fly in the current uh, legal landscape, and people are not just going to accept it anymore. So they had to be get creative. They had to really figure out how to dance around the language of undue burden and viability. So starting with viability, we discussed it a little bit already. They can't say a fetus is a person right? Because it's overly religious language. So they have to use medical reasons, right? This is a pivot from a religious perspective to one that's about, you know, state's interest and state's rights. If a fetus is viable, the state has an interest in protecting it, which is code for we think a fetus is a person. That's essentially what it's code for.
2: The state has a genuine interest in protecting the lives and well-being of all of its citizens or its residents. And you can move back on that and say, and that interest in protecting the health and welfare can go back to even those who are not born, but the potential people, the potential life. So it isn't, or at least it has not been in more recent times related to trying to promote a particular demographic in terms of childbirth. It's just an extension of the state's general role. In protecting our health and safety
0: and this one seems at least logical and i hesitant to use the word logical but you can see like okay if you're a state you want more people in your state i guess right so i don't necessarily agree with it but you know it's not the most outlandish idea we'll hear today is what i'm trying to say
1: um, it's the most logical maybe calling it logical is a stretch but it is on the spectrum of logicalness it is the closest to logical
0: right but the logicness ends here, and they start to get more and more absurd. It's like they're bending over backwards to justify their stance in a secular way. And this is where the undue burden aspect comes in. Remember I say, remember those two words? Undue burden gives a lot of leeway to states to interpret and pass things. So first of all, how would you define undue burden? I guess that's like the first question we should tackle.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think people think about undue burden as something that is added on as a a roadblock or an impediment or a hoop you have to jump through that is not necessary and could potentially prohibit your access to something.
0: But even that, there's still a lot of room to to wiggle. Oh,
1: there's so much room. There's so much capacity to interpret undue burden. Like, it's the size of Texas, this ability to interpret.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I have... Do you want to just take turns going down this list? Do you want to start?
1: Sure. (laughs) So one of the things we talked about with Joanne is that many of these state laws are requiring that physicians have admitting privileges for safety, uh, and safety is in air quotes for folks (laughs) who didn't, didn't sort of hear that in the delivery of the word.
2: Admitting privileges are typically granted on the basis of, will you be admitting patients? You have to admit a certain number of patients over a period of time to be granted admitting privileges at a hospital. Because abortion so rarely results in hospital admission, by definition, you wouldn't meet that requirement. It can also be really controversial for a hospital to grant admitting privileges to an abortion provider. And so there are reasons that hospitals may seek not to. Give admitting privileges.
1: And it's absurd, really, because abortion procedures are really safe. There's no real medical justification for requiring admitting privileges. And like, just because you don't have admitting privileges, doesn't mean you couldn't call nine one one and have a patient taken to the hospital. Exactly. Like you, as a provider, admitting privileges means that you, independent of any other assessment, can directly
0: admit people, put someone in the
1: hospital, right? Like you admit them, but you could still like, without admitting privileges, as I said, call nine one one, have an ambulance come, and take them to the emergency department for treatment, assessment, whatever. So it's just, it's that is just a stupid
0: yeah. requirement. When we say admitting privileges, it doesn't just mean close to the hospital. Omitting privileges is a very specific requirement, which is a lot of hoops to jump through. So just imagine if you want to get a vasectomy and your doctor needs admitting privileges. It's like, and that doesn't make any sense. Like, why does your doctor need admitting privileges for a vasectomy?
2: In some ways, these health and safety oriented rules have a particular brilliance because looked at on their face, they seem... Reasonable and fair. But when you look at whether there is a fit between the harms these laws are seeking to regulate and whether there is, in fact, any harm of that sort, you can see that there actually isn't the need, but they do operate. To make it much more difficult to get abortions.
0: Second is, in order to protect women against these quote-unquote bad physicians, we have set up so many certifications and requirements that these physicians who practice abortion needs to pass. Again, this is basically, we want to make it as difficult as possible for uh, physicians to be abortion providers by making them jump through all these hoops, that's essentially what it is.
1: Yeah, and, and it's not just hoops on the providers for those pieces you talked about, it's also the clinics. So they've put different physical, like built environment requirements on these
2: abortion clinics. They've regulated the places in which abortion can take place, what kind of requirements abortion clinics must meet, their layout, the width of their corridors, the sanitation provisions, the way ventilation is circulated, the proximity of parking spaces to the entrance. Those are all called ambulatory surgical center requirements. And they more than exceed what would be necessary to ensure safety of the premise or the office. Uh,
1: again, for safety, Yeah. <laughs> which, you know, why the width of the hallway matters is open for debate.
0: Yeah. These are all things that's like, oh, we're not imposing an undue burden. We're just looking out for women. And that's their overall justification, which, again, we're only three bullet points in. It's about <laughs> to get worse.
1: Well, I, w- I was just going to say, these are the first three bullet points, which... Like, on their face, you could say, maybe there could be a rational reason for maybe. these yeah right people agree we don't want women getting hacked up by crazy doctors you know sure, sure we, we sure. want them to be respected in the community and you know have the proper training and you know we don't want people getting these in like dirty dingy sure. hallways or whatever so okay maybe <laughs> maybe in like you know alternate reality land we could justify these pieces but the rest of them are just bird crazy
0: yeah here we go <laughs> Yay! The fetus can feel pain.
2: They've also said they want to protect the dignity of the fetus. And so some states have banned abortion at 15 weeks or 20 weeks on the theory that at that point in gestation, a fetus has the neural development to experience pain. This is not supported by the literature on fetal development.
0: None of this is supported, right, by the medical people by science by any sort of people with any understanding of how a fetus develops, like this idea that fetus can feel pain has been debunked multiple times but it's just an excuse that they could push that viability line like even even further back
1: yeah and because of that false claim that fetuses can feel pain then some states are saying well you need to provide anesthesia for the fetus
0: which how does that even work
1: <laughs> so you know it's an attempt to Talk about the dignity of the fetus, but these are not scientifically based claims.
0: Yes. Another hoop for them to jump through in order to provide abortions. Now, okay, we're about to kick up the ridiculous one gear higher. A waiting period. So you need to wait a certain number of days, sometimes weeks, before you can, from seeking an abortion to getting an abortion. I don't know about you, but abortion is a time sensitive thing yeah
1: it can be for sure
0: if you wait the fetus grows that means effectively you push the viability line further back because you can say "Oh, you need to wait two weeks that means i can't come in the two weeks before viability i need to come in two weeks prior to that yeah and uh there are some abortion situations where you can wait like i mean it just abortion is something that gets more complicated the longer you wait so that's why it's time sensitive so by imposing a waiting period that defeats the whole purpose of an abortion, right? You don't... Well, it doesn't defeat the whole
1: purpose of an abortion, right. uh, which is to terminate the pregnancy. But it does, I think, create unnecessary mental stress and anguish yes. that the person who's pregnant is having to deal with. And so, yeah, with the waiting period, that's... Nonsense. Yeah. Moving on. <laughs> um, perhaps, in my opinion worse than the waiting period is requiring people who are pregnant to have an ultrasound where they are shown like the picture of the fetus before they're allowed to get an abortion the mandatory ultrasound is messed up
2: there are extensive pre-abortion counseling requirements that go well beyond what physicians must comply with from an ethics perspective in informed consent And those extensive pre-abortion counseling requirements, sometimes including 24 or 48 hour waiting periods between the consent procedure and when the procedure can be done, mandatory ultrasound viewing, hearing the description of the embryo or fetus on the ultrasound, those are justified on the basis of ensuring that a woman's decision is fully informed so that she does not later end up regretting the decision she made. So protecting the woman from post-abortion regret. Again, um, there's a lot of literature, qualitative and quantitative, on abortion and on the experiences of women who have undergone abortion. And abortion sort of regretting the decision after the fact exists in almost no cases of women who have been interviewed.
0: This is psychological warfare. It serves no purpose than to freak the woman out, essentially. That's just what it does. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And to use your poorly used phrase earlier, the icing on the cake, perhaps, is some states require mandatory counseling yeah. for the pregnant person to protect against post-abortion
0: regret. Big quotes around post-abortion regrets, yeah.
1: Right. And, you know, when we were talking with Joanne about this, I was just blown away at the time, but I was watching a show recently and a female character was pregnant. She wanted to get an abortion. Her male partner was trying to convince her not to turn terminate the pregnancy. Oh, God. And he said, well, what if you know, two years from now, you decide you do want a child and then it's too late. Like, you terminated this pregnancy and then we can't get pregnant later. I hate that
0: argument so much. Okay.
1: (laughs) She was like, well, I know for sure right now in this moment that I don't want a baby. Uh I would rather take how I feel right now than how I might feel two years from now. And I think the same is true for a lot of women. Like, they're seeking an abortion because they want that right now. It's, It's something, for whatever reason, doesn't matter. You know, they're seeking an abortion and forcing people to get counseling and think about how they might feel it, in the future it just I, I don't understand how we can think of this as an effective and necessary strategy
0: yeah and then i don't know like you could regret not having kids i'm pretty sure you could regret having kids too right it's it cuts both ways <laughs> talk,
1: talk to some parents and you'll hear yeah uh you know how, how challenging it can be yeah
0: i mean so planned parenthood versus casey the reason why i focus on this is because it has really redefined roe v wade and this is the case that arguably it my opinion impacts abortion rights more than roe v wade because it in some ways this has superseded roe v wade so that's why i want to spend more time talking about this and all this is under the guise of undue burden and a lot of times the courts have said oh this is not an undue burden because when you analyze it in isolation when you analyze it on paper It sounds somewhat logical, but when you think about it in practice, it makes absolutely no sense. Now, before we move on to the second half, I want to pause here to discuss with you this concept of states interest. In general, we in public health believe that the states indeed do have the power, the responsibilities to do things for the public's interest. Like we talked a lot about, you know, regulations and you know most of our topics have revolved around something that the states can and should do. So, you know, like what do you what do you think about this? States do have interest, and I guess this is a very complicated discussion to have about, you know, the public health's perception of what that interest should be.
1: Right. I think when we're conceptualizing a state's interest with sort of health and well-being from the public health perspective, we're thinking about population impacts. So we put policies and procedures and rules and laws in place to benefit the health and well-being and minimize harms for folks. And that might require some individual behaviors, but really we're thinking about Ways that we can maximize the overall health of the population. Yeah. It's harder for me to conceptualize how states have an interest in abortion because, well, yes, as I just said, sometimes we put public health policies in place to address individual behavior, mm-hmm. but it's often because that behavior has broader mm-hmm. public health implications. In the context of abortion, that's a much harder argument to make. How a decision for myself as an individual to terminate a pregnancy is going to have some larger overall population health effect. I just, it's not something that aligns in the same way as it does with some other more public health, like mask wearing and vaccine mandates and pieces, individual actions that can have impacts on lots of other folks. And it just, I don't see that with abortion.
0: Yeah. Same thing here. I think if anything, limiting access to abortion would impact more people, right? Because as we're about to get into in the second half of this episode, there are consequences when you limit abortion access, right? The problem doesn't go away and therefore consequences happen. And I think I agree with you in that it's one thing to say it's a state's interest. It's another thing for the state's interest to just fundamentally reject a woman's right to their body. And I think at the end of the day, maybe our moral compass, our moral matrix just doesn't align with the fact that, you know, a fetus is like a full person. But I think that's a very complicated discussion that we're not going to have here.
1: You know, the thought that just came into my mind is going back to the the idea of the mask mandate for a moment, the state saying... You must wear a surgical mask or, you know, cloth mask when you get onto an airplane or when you go into a particular place is really a minimal and minor inconvenience. Yes. A state saying you may not terminate this pregnancy and you must carry this fetus to term and deliver a baby and then, you know, figure out what you're going to do with yourself. Uh-huh. That is not a minor no. <laughs> inconvenience. Like this is a huge Thing. So just, you know, thinking back again to the, the state's interest argument, like the bigger the individual impact is, I think the less we should be thinking about the state's interests and more about the individual, which is really where I know we're not talking about Roe v. Wade, but that right to privacy, yeah. you know, originally I said, you know, why didn't this focus on autonomy? It's really focused on privacy. But actually, that seems like maybe the only way to balance out that state's right I see what you or mean. state's yeah. interest argument i don't know i'm i'm not a lawyer i'm not a legal scholar i'm Neither gonna stop pontificating so <laughs> on it but it just came into my mind like oh maybe that's uh yeah. something there
0: but i agree with you in that it doesn't end with pregnancy now you have a, a person
1: right and as we've talked about previously a lot of these folks are not pro-life they're pro-birth yes they want to restrict access they want to make sure that all of these babies are being born and then and when you <laughs> say well i had a baby and now i need help they say pull yourself up by your bootstrap stop being lazy Yeah. and you know don't also support services for folks who have carried a baby to term
0: yeah precisely today's episode is brought to you by voting (laughs) i know i know it's only the end of march and the beginning of april but voting for the midterms election will be here sooner than we think so please listeners exercise your civic duty and vote in both the big ticket and the down ballot elections when they come up.
1: Yes, please make sure to register to vote. Read your information about your elected officials, ballot initiatives, etc. Make sure you vote either early voting or absentee ballot or show up on election day. I really want to restress the first thing I said, which is register to vote. There are states that are taking actions right now to purge voter registration rolls. Some states are mailing out letters to folks and asking you to fill out information that makes it appear that you are re-registering. But actually, if you read the fine print, you are unregistering to vote by completing and submitting that information. And there's these big red letters. You must fill this out. So please make sure that your registration is valid.
0: Yes. And uh, please join us in a few weeks where we talk about voter suppression and why that is a big public health concerns.
1: Yay. <laughs>
0: Uh, welcome back from our brief intermission. Now to those listeners that thought, wow, you guys got a sponsor? No, we didn't. We didn't get a sponsor. <laughs> it's just us. It
1: was just surprise if you surprise. couldn't tell. It's just us.
0: Yeah, it's it's about to be the midterms election, so we just thought we get that message out there.
1: Yep. November sixth. Mm-hmm. So we talked about the history of abortion what's next
0: well this show is called everything is public health so now we're going to talk about finally why abortion and abortion access is important to public health
1: so w- you may have assumed you know that we were going to talk about this but let's lay out the reasons why this is public health and dig into them a little bit more
0: we talked about this before already but you know what do you think all those anti-abortion efforts how do they impact those seeking abortion and do they impact them equitably
1: uh no of course not
0: <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh rhetorical question i guess <laughs> yeah, yeah.
1: In in terms of access, like let's not think about equity for a moment, just like sure. overall access. I know that these laws have limited the number of abortion clinics within a given state. Some states have a handful, if if even only one or two in some places, making it very hard. States can be very large and it can be hard to, to drive and access them, which sort of that limited overall access then raises issues around equity? Can you afford to take the time off of work to travel? Yeah. Do you have the resources to be able to travel, you know, the money for, for transportation, etc. cetera? If you have to travel a really long way to have an appointment and then leave and have a waiting period and then travel a really long way to go back to actually have the procedure, that can
2: impact folks as well.
0: So what are some numbers and demographic statistics for people who seek abortion?
2: It's a public health issue, I think, for several reasons. First, it is an extremely common procedure. The literature shows that approximately one out of every four women will have an abortion by the age of 45. One out of every five women will undergo an abortion by the age of 30. So it's truly an extremely common medical procedure. These Issues with respect to abortion access are not evenly distributed across all persons of childbearing age or all persons who might be seeking an abortion. And the disparities in the burden of abortion access fall squarely again within the kinds of concerns that we in public health care about. We have again a lot of studies on who seeks abortion, why they seek abortion, and when they seek abortion. What we know is that Black women. Seek abortion at five times the rate of white women. And Latinx women seek abortion at double the rate of white women. And people who are low income or poor account for something like 75% of the women who had abortions.
0: Depending on what state you're in, the conditions that you can legally seek an abortion is also very different. Yeah. And it is a mess. Like I thought about going over, you know, state by state. Oh, man. <laughs> That's going to take forever. But just know that there are some states where the what is six weeks? Yeah. That's I don't what are you talking
1: about most women don't even know that they're pregnant at that point unless your cycle is like clockwork and you know for sure that it's going to happen at the same time or you regulate your cycle in some way with birth control for example Yeah. you you might not know at the six week period that you and some women don't have regular cycles and so they might go a longer stretch and might think it's perfectly normal
0: I obviously am not a woman so I don't know anything about menstruation thank you for
1: clarifying that
0: Yeah, (laughs) but I know a lot of my female peers, sometimes you miss a cycle. It just happens, and then you don't really know why. Yeah,
1: there are medical reasons that you might miss a cycle that have nothing to do with being pregnant. Mm-hmm. There can be medication-related reasons that you would miss a cycle. Some women who have an IUD as birth control just yep. don't have a cycle at all, which you would think the IUD would help prevent pregnancy, but things fail, right? You, you're not, They're not 100% effective.
0: Yeah, so. exactly. One thing we want to make completely clear is that abortion is Extremely safe as far as medical procedures go. Some people's like, well, what if they're, well, sometimes you get 1% of that. All medical procedures have risk, okay? Abortion's risk is minimal in a sense that appendectomy risk is relatively minimal and vasectomy risk is relatively minimal, right? Which I think reveals all those requirements for the sake of quote unquote safety is like they're obviously there as barriers because we know for a fact that abortion is, as far as medical procedures go, everything has risk, is relatively, sorry, not relatively, extremely safe.
1: Right. And and something we talked about with Joanne is that we've been talking about and folks might assume that we're talking about an abortion procedure like a medical procedure but there is also medication yeah. for an abortion and so sometimes these clinics provide medication or they're doing sort of the more medical procedures but very little risk with the medication either or right? or with the procedure as you were
0: just talking about. Yeah. And we mentioned before abortion is time sensitive
2: because abortion is a medical procedure that is time sensitive. You can't call your provider and have them say, our next available appointment is in four months, we'll slot you in. There are issues involving the creation of a framework to ensure that abortion can be provided safely. That is that abortion access is protected.
0: So you can imagine with things like waiting periods or all these sort of delays, like that just adds so much stress to to the person who's seeking an abortion. And And I think the reason why it's a public health issue, one reason is that when you don't have access to abortion, Life just becomes so much more difficult.
2: Access in terms of the swiftness of getting to a provider, access in terms of distance between the person and their provider, access in terms of a trained practitioner who is available. And so that's sort of the flip of why abortion is a public health issue. It's because of various obstacles to access that introduce delays, and sometimes delays that are to the point that abortion isn't available where a person lives, and they must travel, and it introduces additional expense. And it's the difficulties with access that make abortion even more pointedly a public health issue.
0: If you really want an abortion, now you have to think about, okay, do I have to drive out of state- I like, do need to fly out of the country. What if I don't have the money to fly out of the country or drive to like, do I seek a back alley abortion? But those are, you know, not as safe as medical abortions. And and the theme that we explored in the prohibition episode came back, right? You can't ban something and expect it to go away, right? People who don't have access to safe and timely abortions will seek other unsafe ones, which then becomes a public health issue. Well,
1: just imagine for a moment that you go to your doctor. And they tell you, Mm -hmm. you have cancer, but before we can do surgery to remove the cancer, you have to leave and think about it for two weeks. It's a a little bit of a hyperbolic example, but we don't do this for any other medical procedure. Well, maybe some plastic surgery. I don't know. So shouldn't say we don't do it for any other procedure. But, you know, for other things where time might be an essential consideration, it's unlikely that we're doing this. So... It just boggles my mind why we think that this is an acceptable burden to put on people who are pregnant when they're trying to seek an abortion.
0: Yeah, and taking agency away. And there's also a recently very terrifying trend of pro-life people harassing both abortion seekers and providers at the clinics, which, you know, if you're pro-life... And you do those things? Are you really pro life, right? Anyway, I don't want—I don't want to comment. Yeah, well,
1: right. There's, there's that. You know, bombing. So I was not as intelligent and awesome, obviously, as then as I was now. But in the 90s, you know, being in middle school and high school, hearing about some of this, like so, Planned Parenthood v. Casey. I double checked the year; it was 1992. Mm, 90s. And so I was nine, I guess. But. I remember hearing, I don't remember like the decision. It's not like, oh, I was sitting in this place right. at this time when the decision was <laughs> yeah, made. Yeah, yeah. But I remember there being conversations about it. I remember my dad watching the news and reading newspaper articles about the things that were going on. And I remember hearing about people protesting at abortion clinics and there being bombs, not necessarily in 1992, but sort of around throughout that time. Yeah. You know, people were being killed, you know, abortion providers. And yeah, uh, yeah I just, was thinking about that when you said that they say you're pro-life, but then you're harming adults.
2: Real (laughs) adults. Like (laughs)
1: actual people, not future people.
2: States seem to believe that the right to life begins at conception and ends at childbirth. If you look at some of the states that most severely regulate abortion and introduce the largest obstacles, they also have deploringly high levels of maternal and fetal Mortality and morbidities.
0: Lastly, while certainly not all unintended pregnancies are bad, right? We must recognize that for some individuals in difficult situations, a newborn doesn't help, right? And I think we mentioned before that kids cost a lot of money and uh, they cost a lot of effort to nurture, I guess. Uh, I'm not a parent, so I can't really comment too much on this. But yeah, we have to recognize that it's a decision that will stay with you for. Decades.
1: Not just 18 years, the rest of your life. The rest of your
0: life. So if you put people in those difficult situations and add this on their plate, how is that a good thing? That's not a good... I don't know what else to say about this.
1: Yeah, and you know, we circle back to the prior statement about sometimes people are in emotional, mental, physical... Economic conditions that are not conducive for their own well being, and they don't want to bring a child into that. But yeah, when you're talking about, you know, you bring a child into this and, and it's challenging to raise a child, I mean, some folks who are listening mm-hmm. may have kids and may know exactly what you're talking about. But for folks who don't, anyone who's had a pet now I'm not equating pets <laughs> and children, pets are way better than children. Uh-huh. But if you have raised a pet, you know, a cat, a dog, whatever, from a a puppy or a kitten, it's it's work.
0: Yeah, it's a lot of work.
1: I mean, when we got our dog, you know, yeah, she would sleep a few hours, yeah, at night, and then she had to get up and go outside and pee. And so we're getting up every two or three hours to let her out and pee. You know, sure, we're not having to feed a baby or any of those, but it, you know, it causes disruption, yeah. and then you know, it changes what you can do, where you can go, all those kinds of things. So it definitely is a. It's not just like a little thing to introduce a baby into your life.
0: Yeah, so that's why, from a public health perspective, abortion access is very. Important because it provides a necessary service essentially,
1: and it's a constitutional right,
0: yes, and it's a constitutional right. Thank you for listening to this episode about abortions and thank you for sticking to the end. We know this is a longer episode than normal. I want to end with this. You can be personally against abortions but not limit other people's right to seek them, right? You could be personally, I'm against abortions but it's another thing to go out of your way to make sure no one else gets an abortion. At the end of the day, it is a medical procedure that some people need and I implore everyone to not to make this more complicated than that.
1: Thank you for listening to this episode of Everything is Public Health. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe and spread the word so more people can learn about the awesomeness of public health.
0: New episodes are released every Thursday on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please give us a rating and a review wherever you listen. It helps the show immensely. Send us questions or comments to everythingispublichealth at gmail.com. Reach out if you think we missed an important perspective or suggest a future episode topic.
1: Follow us on Twitter at EverythingIsPH or Instagram at EverythingIsPublicHealth. You can also find me on Twitter at Dr. Krafasi. If you want to support the podcast directly, we have a Patreon page. You can find the link in the episode description below. And remember, everything is public health.
0: Everything is public health.